right, but let's just say that I hadn't seen it, and I said to you, I haven't seen Evil Dead 2 yet. What would you think? I'd think that you're a cinematic idiot, and I'd feel sorry for you. Hello, I'm Monica. And I'm Brad. And this is Cinematic Idiot. Every two weeks, we watch a classic movie we've always meant to see, but we've never gotten around to. We want you to watch these movies with us, like a movie book club. They're just two rules. The films have to be from 1993 or earlier, and at least one of us hasn't seen it. Hey, Brad. Hey, Monica. So this is our fifth show. Fifth show. And at the top, we always want to remind everyone, this is a spoiler zone. So as we talk about our feature presentation, we have the right to spoil the entire film. Yes. So we are going to talk about all parts of the film, including the end. Um, And the film for this week is The Grifters. Yes. 1990, directed by Stephen Frears, based on the Jim Thompson uh, hard-boiled crime novel. Um, from the 60s, uh, script by Donald Westlake, who's also a crime writer, uh, starring Angelica Houston, Annette Benning, and John Cusack. Yeah, a very interesting cast in 1990, because all of them were at very different points in their careers. Certainly. Um, and this was a really fun movie, and one that uh, you chose, particularly uh, appropriate because you were just kind of finishing off your big film noir kick that you've been on. Mm-hmm. Had a whole had a whole summer of film noir, thanks to TCM Summer of Darkness marathons and the class I was taking through them. And so I thought, hey, a neo noir, something that I've been wanting to see, something that's literally set on our Amazon Prime watch list for since we opened the account right. a few years ago so <laughs> something that's always been sitting there eventually we'll get to it of course we never get to it uh so this is a great opportunity to check this film out yeah absolutely and uh and so why don't you start out this was your first time seeing the film right first time my first this, time seeing the yeah film neither too. of us had seen this so this is from 1990 it's a miramax harvey burger yeah, joint yeah. um so the movie is about grifters it's about some con men and women um, played by John Cusack, Angelica Houston, and Annette Benning. Uh, the characters are Roy, who's a small-time con, works just the short con. And it, and it has a very stylish opening as we meet all three of these characters in split-screen as they begin their respective types of cons. Lily, his mother, who's only a few years older than him, 14, 15 years, um, is, uh, works for a, a loan shark out of the East Coast uh, mm-hmm. with the wonderful name of Bobo. Bobo Justice, a great loan <laughs> shark name. And what she does is she goes from racetrack to racetrack, um, shorting the uh, odds for the long shots. Basically, at the last minute, she bets huge amounts of money to shorten those odds just in case a long shot were to win, which would ruin Bobo's uh, his, his spread. And then we have Myra, who we we know she's conning. She's trying to sell some jewelry in the beginning uh, and is kind of left to try to seduce Stephen Tobolewski, the jeweler, to make it work. So as we uh, get to know them, we figure out they're each con men of their own way. They're each grifters. Um, and from there we proceed, find out that Myra and John Cusack's character Roy are in a relationship. She's a little bit older than him. Uh, she seems to be a little, possibly a little more... Uh, but world. maybe that she's even a little older than she looks, yeah. like she's a little older than her. Yeah, certainly. Right. We then uh, get a little bit of time where Lily and Myra get to uh, pace each other off, stare at each Lily other down. Lily instantly hates Myra. Mm-hmm. And Myra's certainly wary of, of Lily and the influence she might have on her young, impressionable son, who's in his early 20s. Um, as this continues on, Lily has issues because of her caring for her son by following him. She misses a, a, a race that she was supposed to bet on and a long shot, a 70-to-1 
Longshot wins. Basically, she's beaten up by Bobo and her, has her hand uh, scarred with a, a cigar, a cigar uh, uh, ember. Mm-hmm. So from there, Myra learns that Lily has actually been stealing from Bobo, squeals on her to Bobo's men in the east, and Lily has to go on the lam. Myra hot, hatches a plot in which she's going to chase uh, Lily down and kill her and steal her money. And that's where Roy gets called in to come and identify Lily's body uh, out of state. But once he does, the FBI man brings him in and he realizes... Her hand's not scarred like Lily's hand. This must be Myra. And so at some point, Lily must have turned the tables, which leads Roy back home to find his mother stealing from him. And it leads to a somewhat uh, sexually charged ending Mm -hmm. between Lily and her son Roy as she pleads with him to let him steal his stash so she can make a run. But Roy just can't let that money go. And Lily attempts to try to seduce him. He rebukes her. And in a moment of uh, panic, she hits him with a briefcase, causing the glass he's holding to shatter into his neck and kill him. She then steals his money and drives off. Which leads to the beautiful shot of her in that old-fashioned um, kind of 30s or 40s era elevator mm-hmm. um, and her leaving kind of on her own. And that's actually the cover shot uh, of the Facebook group right now is Angelica Houston in that Gorgeous kind of lone shot. shot, the last one standing. That blood red dress, yep. you know, her mm-hmm. hair covered a little bit, just peeking through the front, um, you know, trying to hide herself off as Myra. Um, but yeah, going down, descending down in the elevator, you know, down to her own personal hell as she's killed her son. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that we said about this film when we were talking about it last week, when you were trying to describe, you know, what it is that you know about this film, right away you're jumping in with, like, the Oedipal issues. Oh, certainly. Um, I mean, that's something that this film is famous for, like, in retrospect, but certainly after seeing it. Like, so uh, what did you think, like, in seeing the shocking ending and everything else? Well, having already, as with us being a cinematic idiots, everything's already been kind of spoiled <laughs> for us. So we already kind of have, you know, we're in for right. it. So it wasn't as shocking for me because I also thought it was, you know, beautifully handled. thought mm-hmm. the script was tight. Uh, the performances by, by Houston in that final sequence is wonderful. And, and Cusack does a great job, too, of holding his own with her as best he can. Yeah. Um, it's shocking. It's disturbing. But it's so beautifully handled that it just wins you over. Yeah. Um, certainly, I can understand why audiences. You know, I'm not. I'm not gonna get on a soapbox and say, "Hey, don't get too upset about the incest taboo." No, but I would say, if it's handled well in this art, as it is right here, um, yeah. that it's been used in art for thousands of years. So. If it has a point, if it has a purpose, if it's done well, I would say judge it for that. And yeah, so, it, it, it all felt reasonable. It mm-hmm. did not feel like kind of a shock ending that was put on just to get people talking. No, it wasn't like, creepy it for creepy sake. It all felt totally part of mm-hmm. of this kind of story and something that, that might actually happen. Well, it's um, up that Lily you know, had him when she was 14, when she right. was just a kid, that she never really bonded to him eternally and for years you know, claimed that he was her kid brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a disconnect within this kind of maternal son relationship that they already have. And right. There's obviously something on Roy's end where he doesn't he doesn't necessarily see her completely as a mother. He calls her Lily. He refers to her by her first name. There is, you know, a sexual charged part of their relationship immediately, but it's because it's they're not mother and son in a traditional aspect. Yeah. He's with Myra because she's an older woman. Even if she's trying to be young, you know, play it a little bit younger, even younger than she really can actually convincingly pull off. That's that's what he's projecting onto it. He likes being with an older woman. Yeah, but whoa, creepy. Um, it, it, oh, certainly it's, it's creepy. Really? <laughs> yes, let's let's. I'm gonna I'm gonna back up. It is creepy, yeah. but it's handled very well. Right, it's handled it's, in a way that it seems like it fits with the film. It's not salacious. Right. And it's not. It's not as you said. 
for to be salacious for the fact of being salacious. Mm -hmm. It's not just to try to skeeze you out to skeeze you out. It's it's really handled well. Right. It's plain enough, but like almost a Greek tragedy of these characters, honestly. Yeah, no, a Greek tragedy, I think, is a good way to put it. And the the performances in this film, there was a lot of really strong performances, um, particularly from Angelica Houston, who I've loved for a long time. And um, it was really cool to see her in this kind of tour de force role. Um, but Annette Benning was sort of a revelation for me. I don't know that I really have ever had any thoughts about Annette Benning, frankly. <laughs> like, I mean, I've seen her in American Beauty and, um, you know, Bugsy, I guess. I don't know what her other films are. And the kids are all right. Yeah. And like, she does, she does great work, solid, but she almost... Uh, because she came out of the scene as as a mature woman, right? Um, and certainly in this film, and even the Great Outdoors, which mm-hmm. I also kind of remember her from uh, mm-hmm. as Dan Aykroyd's wife, in that she's she doesn't have that like a young starlet that grows up when we see her age. She already comes out of the scene as a fully formed mature woman, and she was a Broadway actress before this. So it's kind of you know you don't really get that kind of change. She already seems. I'm going to put this quote unquote old. Mm-hmm. So already, she always feels mature. So she doesn't have that kind of like change from like a, being an ingenue to being a grand dame. So it's maybe that's part of it. Uh, also, maybe it's because a lot of her movies are kind of boring um, and the I kind wish. of Oscar baity that we're not. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. not in like Belmont interested. and all yeah. that. Yeah. So there's mm-hmm. certain things that we're not going to be necessarily interested in. But she is brilliant in this she is wonderful and i think she's great and the kids are all right so let's i'll put that out there i almost forgot about that movie she's great in that i I really Mm. enjoy that film um it's oscar Beatty, but it's still actually a good movie yeah it's cool she's incredible in this and this is one of her first first major pictures and she was rightfully nominated for best supporting actress yeah she's she's not only it's not only just a strong performance but it's you know she's beautiful she's vibrant like she feels electric throughout this Mm -hmm. entire film like as a woman who's real only you know sense of being able to survive all happens through her, her sexuality uh, which always just makes me say her sexuality but that's how she she's able to actually maneuver her way through a world that really doesn't have a lot to do with her um and she's always after this big score and so you know she had a taste of a big score unlike roy who only had the small score and so she's been trying to get that back like gradually and over time and so you know she hasn't been successful in being able to do that but she's always chasing a big dream and a big fish and it feels like she's playing three different characters yeah. within this one role mm-hmm. and depending on the sequence depending on the flashback that she's talking about that's a completely different character the the, the facade that she's created for Roy to try to hook him in, to reel him in. Whether she really wants to use him as a dupe or not, that's up for debate. But there's there's also a, a third character that's kind of between the lines that you kind of see, especially when she's kind of hanging out with uh, her scenes with Lily. It's, it's a little tamped down of who she actually is. It's not mm-hmm. as bubbly and effervescent yep. as she is with Roy. She, it's, it's a cooler portion that she's trying to do. It's, it's wonderful. She's amazing in this. Yep. And and it is really fun to watch. It's, it's kind of like in the way when you're watching a good heist movie and every Everything's kind of happening on all cylinders, and you never know what's going to happen next, and who's going to turn where, and and um, so to really see three characters who you feel like have this opportunity to always turn on each other, but it becomes quickly apparent um, that Roy is not cut out either for the con game, and that that is maybe amplified by the fact that John Cusack 
does not really put in a strong performance, I would say, particularly when compared with Angelica Houston and Annette Benning, They are just, like, running circles around him. The issue, I think, for, for Cusack is that he's just very solid. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, to go to the, he's good in the role. He's supposed to play a rube. He's supposed to play someone who's who's kind of afraid to to take himself out, who, who has a bit of a puffed-up sense because, as a con man, he's taking advantage of these people. But it's on such a small level. He's nickel and diming bartenders, saying... Showing a twenty, but sliding him a ten, and you know recouping that a little extra from him, it just seems it's very low key. But do, so, do you think that it's a strong performance? I think it's a solid performance, and I think it's a good performance. For what it is, he's supposed to be somewhat playing a rube. The problem is, he's in a movie where Angelica Houston and Annette Bening are lights out, dynamite, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like that's the issue. If he was just in a with two solid actresses, people of the same caliber, you'd be like. Great job, John Cusack. He'd be the one you'd be talking about. But they're so good that I, I just, you would have to, he would have to be someone who was amazing yeah. in that role. And I don't know, know if that role really requires that. I think he actually fits the but role I perfect. Guess even like at this point in his career, he's coming off all of his teenage roles. So, you know, sure thing and say anything and, and all of those other yeah, things that are happening like, right around the same time. Right. He's him. transitioning from a teenage actor mm-hmm. into trying to do more adult roles. Say anything had been, was the year before, mm-hmm. but he that's really his last kind of teeny bopper 80s teen right. film. Because the same year he does say anything, he does, uh, he plays Buck Weaver in Eight Men Out. Yes. So that's a big transition. He's trying. To, he's in both worlds at the same time, and this is him leaving that other world behind. But his teen characters were always very charming. That was a huge part of the John Cusack appeal: is that he either seems very like electric, or he's got you know like kind of a smooth talking thing going. And so in this film, you know, I think he may supposed to be a rube. Be, you know, he might, he might supposed to have to be a rube in his character. But like the, the desk, the front guy at the desk says like when he walks away, oh, that guy could be a congressman. Like he's supposed to be like very okay. smooth. He's supposed to be still able to be have Annette Benning's character, Myra, see something in him that she thinks she can get him to run big cons with him. Like he's supposed to have a spark of that. Hmm. And then it's Lily who's supposed to be able to see that really he can't, you know, like, and so it just seemed to me, I'm like, why would anybody believe in this guy? You might be right. Because often when I think of the word that's kind of coming to my mind right now, his performance, it's petulant. Right. And that's not, so I I think you might be a little bit right. Maybe he's just, just solid. Mm -hmm. Not even, I'll give you that. He's, and and it's even more magnified with Benning and Houston, just, running circles around him yeah it makes me wonder what that set was like because i don't i i don't even have a good sense of how Stephen fair as a director really is with actors he's done some movies with very strong acting show pieces in them so i would think you know like he is pretty good with actors mm-hmm. but um but yeah it's interesting to see a film where people just don't seem well matched and with this film unlike some of the other films that we've talked about where there has been maybe more hindsight or they've been bigger and so there's more behind the scenes kind of gossip and tales I couldn't find much about no there's this. not much I think it was just a straight up you know straight up thing I know Cusack loved this book and had tried to option it himself okay. years before and, was, and really fought to get the, the role of Roy I know you know Houston had some you know problems getting into the character okay. um, because of some of the darkness in it mm-hmm. uh, maybe at that point I'm not really sure where she was at in her career and why that was such a problem for her because she is an excellent actress mm-hmm. um, but she had I think the most more, a lot of the research I had was about how the difficulty she had to get into this character that, a character that she found really vulgar mm-hmm. that she really had to you know jump into and she does an amazing job mm-hmm. with this um, because for me Angelica Houston I really don't have much of a, a sense for her oh, around really? this time. I mean, really, for me, she's become 
you know, a Wes Anderson staple. Interesting. Um, in those kind of things. So I don't have much of a, a sense of who she was okay. around this time. Um, but aside from the fact that she's John Huston, the, the acclaimed director's daughter, and she's Hollywood royalty. Okay, that's interesting. But she's, she's incredible in this. The women are made up in a similar style. They have a similar hair. They have a you know, similar silhouette often. Yeah, um, and it's a, a modern film, but everything has a nice throwback mm-hmm. kind of feel. Because it's, it's a pulp novel from mm-hmm. the 60s. It definitely wants to have that. It's one of the things that neo-noir will do is kind of have a timelessness or a throwback sensibility because mm-hmm. it's still noir. I mean, noir only really lasted for about 18 years, yeah. and neo-noir lasted for about the last 60. So it's, <laughs> everyone's still throwing back to that old setup. Um, Stephen Frears is a director who I find hot and cold, yeah. but it's massively hot and cold. It's scolding or frigid. Well, and I think it, he's one that started out really strong and like was one of these actor, er, directors doing really exciting work. I love mm-hmm. My Beautiful Laundrette. It was one of That's those wonderful. films that... Um, and I like a previous film of his called The Hit, starring Terrence Stamp, which I've is also a crime, a crime story. Uh, mm-hmm. Terrence Stamp, uh, a, a baby Tim Roth, and John Hurt are in that. That's a wonderful thing. And those are okay. some of his first films. Um, and then he does Dangerous Liaisons. Yes, which I like quite a bit, even though it's a little dated at this point, which seems odd to say about a period piece, but it is. Um. <laughs> I, I, that, that is true. I haven't seen Dangerous Liaisons, but I have seen Cruel Intentions, so I feel pretty <laughs> confident that I know what's going on. No, Dangerous Liaisons was a big film, a big film right beforehand. This film was brought to him by Martin Scorsese, who does mm-hmm. the direction, uh, who does the production, I'm sorry. On yeah, this, we haven't touched on and, that. And um, who actually does the opening narration. Uh, so to kind of key us back to yeah. in The Third Man, when the opening narration is done by the director, Carol Reed, the opening narration to kind of set the scene mm-hmm. uh, for the, a slightly seedy uh, yeah. L.A. Is, uh, is, the, is the producer, Martin Scorsese. He brought in Frears. Um, and then they cobbled it together. Uh, Donald Westlake is an amazing crime fiction author who's almost contemporary of Have you Jim ever Thompson. read anything by him? Uh, yes, actually. Really? Strange enough, Donald Westlake, as with all crime authors, has a million pseudonyms. Uh, his most famous is uh, Richard Stark, who wrote the Parker series. Um, the Parker series is uh, are, the, are the books that the, the movie Point Blank is based on. Also, the I believe the bad uh, Jason Statham film from a few years ago, Parker, is named after. Wasn't there like an 80s television show uh, i'm not really certain about that but the main thing i know it from is as a fan of of comic books and graphic novels is the darwin cook series uh richard starks Uh, parker colon the hunter or the outfit or the score or slake round uh darwin cook is an amazing uh, canadian cartoonist worked on the dc new frontier stuff he's been doing these adaptations and they're dynamite amazing they're great crime books um so the the parker characters is big i mean uh, point Blank with Lee Marvin's one of my favorites. I love that movie. So Westlake came in, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Does a great job. Keeps it tight uh, of a Jim Thompson novel, who's known for mostly for uh, The Killer Inside Me, uh, The Getaway. The mm-hmm. film The Getaway is based on him. And, of course, The Grifters is one of his most famous works. And, you yeah. know, just it's hard-boiled. It's uh, a different world. It's perfect for a neo-noir, and which is why it has a, a throwback feel. Yeah. Trying to recapture that 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 old era. I I have not read a ton of crime fiction, um, but I have read The Killer Inside Me, which is one of the more disturbing crime fiction books that I've picked up. Um, so much to the point that I couldn't even watch the film when it mm. came out a few years later because I was just like, nope, thanks, that's good. But um, 
But I am interested in uh, Westlake after this because I think that um, it was really well put together. It seems mm-hmm. like it would be a really good read on top of, you know, being a great Yeah, I, would, I definitely suggest some of the Thompson stuff is, is uh, Population 1280 is supposed to be a very good mm-hmm. work of his. And Westlake, his his Parker books are great. And okay. But Thompson's great, too. So, um Great script, great bones. Freer's, I mean, yeah, I love Be- My Beautiful Andrette. I love the hit. This is a guy who's also then, like, right after this, does Hero. I know. You know, it's very hot or cold. I mean, he eventually does High Fidelity, which is a favorite of mine, mm-hmm. uh, based on the Nick Hornby novel. Also yeah, I, I like it a lot, too. Dirty Pretty Things. But these, you know, he does what I kind of call, like, quaint British movies with mature people mm-hmm. in them. And I, I don't mean to be flippant about that. But generally, they're, you know, it's your feel of me. Well, it's he's your, the working queens, in a style so now, It's a certainly yeah. style. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something I'm interested in. His new, latest is going to be the program, uh, the... Lance Armstrong biopic. Yeah. I, <laughs> you and I both don't like biopics. I think that is... That's uh... the genre that we can let go of. Mm-hmm. I like this. I really enjoyed The Grifters as a neo-noir. Yep. It felt like a throwback, but it felt still fresh. I, I think it's got a great... That troika of these three characters pitted against each other works really well. Freer's... I don't think of him as being stylish at all. He's, he seems like one of these directors, as I was about to mention, just kind of workmanlike. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a, he's a good craftsman of putting together a solid film. As, as we heard, there was... Really, as far as we could tell, no drama off this set. Maybe that's what he does. He's, yeah. he's drama-free. He puts together a solid production. I've yet to see him. I mean, I might not be a fan of all his films, but The Queen is not a flop. The no, Queen no, is a it's solid still well-made. He still makes solid, well-made films that fit a good act structure, that have solid performances. So he's the kind of, you know, it, and that's not a bad thing to have. That's how no. you can end up having a, a 40-year career in Hollywood and in England where you can actually be someone who actually crafts a solid film. And occasionally, if you've got something that, that's great, uh, you know, a really good script like Dirty Pretty Things, you have you know, kind of something lively like High Fidelity, you know, the hit, you can put together something uh, that really is exceptional. But the rest of the time, Mill of Road is not a bad way to go. His yeah. movies make enough money. But for me, Freer's at this point, it's just sad that he kind of then goes into a doldrums for he's, about well, eight years. He's just not an exciting director yeah. when it comes to like new, interesting material. Mm-hmm. But it's you know he's he's had a long and solid career, and that's cool. But but this film, it it, it was one of the the films of his that I've most enjoyed mm-hmm. for sure. It it's was got a great it was pacing, moves along well. Um, how, what did you feel mm-hmm. about that very controversial ending? Then so it's we talked about it after we finished watching it about the controversy surrounding it. of course the fact that Lily attempts to come on to him to to right. offer sex to get this money similar to what Myra would have done with the the jeweler character or some mm-hmm. of the other characters that we've seen in her cons how did you feel about that final sequence well i i think that um there was clear foreshadowing for it, right? Um, the Myra character, you know, right in the last kind of conversation that she ever has with Roy, um, brings up that he might have feelings for his mother as a way to hurt Roy, but maybe also try to reveal some truth within himself to which he reacts very badly. Um, Violently. And, right, and so you can really see that this, uh, has some kind of emotional resonance for him. And so for the film to actually go there at the end, it was a little bit surprising. I think the main thing that I had taken away beforehand was that uh, film audiences, like people who were in the, it, like actually in theaters, were so shocked that that had actually happened. It almost seemed like the kind of ending, like a crying game ending, where people oh, okay. were just like, it shaded the whole rest of the film experience because that was something that they weren't expecting and it was something that was way outside 
of any kind of norm, right? But I think so, you hit it on the head. It is foreshadowed, right? Uh, like by a wonderful pretty sequence. blatantly. <laughs> so um, it's not something that that you oh, don't yeah. expect. The first time Lily and Roy see each other, she kisses him on the mouth. Right. I mean, it, it's throughout the film that there is an undertone between them that right. there's something. So that, that there's a connection. Very clear. I think. Um, What's also tough is, of course, that she leaves him there to die. You know, like, there, she's already saved him twice. She's not going to save him a third time. So mm. there's there's a lot of that there. Um, and so she is going to walk away and do what she needs to do for herself and to survive, which is the character that she's shown throughout the entire film. So she ultimately stays true to her character. She's a lost person, as they all are, all three of them. Um which you're able to see throughout the, you know, none of them kind of get off uh, scot-free in terms of being like strong or good quality characters, oh, <laughs> you no, know, everybody's good people, no. really just out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I felt it was, it was true to all of that. And I thought that that last shot was haunting and, and beautiful. Oh, it's um, a gorgeous shot. It, yeah. it makes the film at the end. It just leaves you wanting more. And then, mm-hmm. Cut. And, she and ultimately, you know, it looks like she's dead. She could possibly get away. Um, but one of the conversations that she and Roy have, you know, as he's trying to tell her, you know, that she can go and get away, but she can't take his money, is that she could just go and live somewhere and live a quiet life. And just she can not live a straight it. life. And she can't do it. No. I mean, that's one of the things she says is the only thing she's ever done. It's the only thing she ever knows how to do. And she's not going to change. And and I think that's an interesting commentary, too. So, you know, I thought the film was strong and I thought the ending was, was true to the film. So I, I totally and thought, I thought it was Yeah, good. I agree with you. I thought it was wonderful. It definitely fits in with the noir concept that she's she's you know as the ledger goes she saved a life so she can take a life right it's new noir because she gets to live at the end instead mm-hmm. of being punished uh you know via the haze code oh, that's truly what makes it neo noir because she i, I would because say as a woman she doesn't die well no uh, even though he does generally within noir because of the haze production code mm-hmm. that was at the time you couldn't have someone who um committed crimes committed violence in the film actually escape. no one Men or women. Generally, okay. if if, a, if anyone commits the crimes, a, a murder, okay, an actual murder. Not, I'm just I'm trying to think of uh, generally within the, within yeah. the Hayes Code. If if someone kills someone in murder, not yep. self defense, not you know as an accident, but if you actually purposefully kill someone, male or female, at the end of the film, you either have to die or go to jail. Okay, you, justice must be meted out, must be served. Right. So in a in an actual traditional war, Lily would have to die as well. Mm-hmm. She would have to die at some point before but she gets away and that's part of a you know but a it's not a, it's, it's not like a she gets away like happy music plays as no. the sun comes up no. over the hills it's, like it's, it's still, not it's still yeah. noir and right. and the book was written in the 60s which is still it's crime coming out of you know having seen noir and and since it's literature it's able to do a little bit different it's not held to right. a censorship code um the Hayes code is probably one of the reasons why when i really think about noir i can't think of that many con man movies in the noir thing, I can think of heist, and they're, you know, noir of course is mostly criminals and, yeah. and mooks and you know gangsters. But those people get their comeuppance. You know, those people are we don't see their crimes. Um, the heist film was pushing the, you know, we have a lot of noir heist films push the code because before you couldn't show that kind of thing. The code didn't allow you to actually show how a crime was hatched and plotted out and yeah. put into effect because it was thought to allow for imitators to give people. Now with a heist film, it's such a big to do. It's. I guess they were able to push that through, but I'm going to assume that with a conman movie, we actually see how Roy does his con. Um, yeah. We, Myra explains her big long con 
in quite big detail yeah. of how she's able to do it. We see how Lily does her con uh, at the racetrack. So that's not the kind of thing we would have seen in a traditional noir. That's one of the reasons also, since it's the hindsight and well past the period where the code has changed, we now have the delightful quote-unquote MPAA that gives things <laughs> ratings uh, to set the, the standard for films now. Well, so after we watched the film, I went and read the um, Roger Ebert uh, review that mm-hmm. he put out at the time he gave it four stars. He loved this film. Um, but one of the things that he talks about really early on is how we love movies about people who are conners because, um, you know, villains in general overpower by strength um, or by power. And it's con, danger, yeah. Right, exactly. Or, or just by, they can fed out by things that maybe you can't fight. But, um, you know, a con artist is always just doing things by being smarter than you. And the only way that they can ever get away with doing what they're doing is by being really likable. So you're automatically talking about characters who are smart and likable mm-hmm. from the very beginning. So they even if they're doing, yeah. right, like terrible things, like the audience is always going to be with them, you know, from the very beginning. And so whether that's about showing how you do the con and letting the audience feel smart with you um, or really just following these characters. And so it's what is so fun about it. And he makes the point um, that this is just a few years after House of Games, the mammoth film, um, which was a a good um, timeline for me because I was I, I hadn't really placed it in that point. But like, whereas House of Games has like an audience character who's not in the con and like really seeing how everything's going on, this doesn't like all three of them are deep in the game, and so you don't really have anybody to relate to other than through one of those people. And mm-hmm. so you know, how are you going to get there? That's great. I I loved it. I'm glad we checked this one out. Um, I'm a, I'm already a big fan of, uh, of Jim Thompson and Donald Westlake. I can't wait to check out more. Maybe I'll force you to watch The Getaway at some point soon. You've never seen The Getaway. Uh, neither have I. <laughs> Haven't seen anything. Very good. Well, we want to do something a little bit different. Um, We're still pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah, for, for the second part of the show today. But you and I have both been watching the same show that we are both crazy excited about and i feel like we're not reading enough or seeing enough about it in in the world and marketplace and so we wanted to talk a little bit about it and maybe get some of you guys to watch it with us yeah so instead of our normal pop culture interlude we're going to just talk about the usa network television show mr robot mr robot which every time it comes up and we're watching this i do want to go mr robot i I (laughs) fight myself every time the title card comes up but honestly, I'm just going to do it every time from now on. It's Mr. Robot. It's Mr. Robot on the USA Network. The USA Network. Mm-hmm. Um, this was one that we'd heard about originally. Uh, it's, it, I think it's still one of the kind of sleeper hits of the it's summer. Certainly, yeah. It was something that we heard about f- through another great podcast. Because if, if anything, this podcast is about getting you to listen to other better podcasts. Yep. And this is... We'll ho- be your gateway drug. Exactly. This is Hollywood Prospectus. This is through the Grantland yeah. Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Chris Ryan, Andy Greenwald. They were the first ones to talk about it. I'd seen a little bit of advertising for it. The name, honestly, Mr. Robot, is terrible. It's a bad name. It's a terrible name. Not going to bring you in. It's on the USA Network. And that's that's the kiss of death right there. And it's there. starring one Mr. Christian Slater. Who is Who literally is a kiss of death on television. <laughs> well, has he been on television before? I mean, I... Oh, yeah. he's been on television. Okay. And everything gets canceled. Okay. Toot sweet. Got it. So it's it's got three strikes. There's no reason to check this out. But this podcast we listen to, it's a, it's a good weekly podcast... They're loving it. They're calling it the show of the summer, the best, the currently the best show on TV. Right. 
and we got to check it out. Right. And I had seen it mentioned in a, the same breath a lot of times as Unreal, which is another show that started this summer that I liked more than you did. But I, I still really, really liked it. Well, you it. watched it. I was in the room. <laughs> Let's leave it there. But yeah, so so two kind of new and very original shows. And Certainly original, yeah. yeah. So Mr. Robot is the creation of Sam Ismail. Um, he is really only known for uh, an independent film that he released last year starring uh, Justin Long and Emmy Rossum called Comet. Um, and also from some, some of the research I was able to do, he was on uh, The Blacklist. And that's not The Blacklist, one word, but The Blacklist. It's uh, something that I, I don't know if you remember. It's about a list of industry insiders put out like every year of the top unproduced screenplays oh, that are generally... Okay beloved some of them have been optioned but generally will never get produced for one reason or another so i guess he had one of those on a few years ago guess he started this this project off as a film realized it probably wasn't going to work his agent said why don't you go to television well it started getting longer and longer and longer yes right and he eventually took it to to usa shopped around usa picked it up they gave him notes said hey why don't we change this no voiceover narration why don't you make the main character elliot a little more likable and his answer was no, this is the show. We're going to make this show. And USA being USA surprisingly said, sure, go ahead. No one's watching anyway. Yeah. Just do what you want to do. And thankfully, he held his ground and, because it's such a strong show from it. So it's a great show in that it's so, it, it's completely original and, and really um, sort of daring for a television show because of course you know a television show on a network where there are commercials where everything is about you know um, selling you know doodads still well, to be realistic as Jack Donaghy would say these are just the funny skits we, that you happen between car commercials right and so then meanwhile you have a show on that is naming names of corporations like that are doing ill and wrong in the world um that you know are parent companies of like things that are happening on this network so it's sort of weird and shocking um but very sort of reminiscent in some ways of fight club in the beginning and i and i also do think as we've kind of gotten along it's a little bit also reminiscent of american psycho it's gotten very, uh, very much, much like into that. Psycho. But I will say, not only does he um, lash out and certainly against corporate entities, he also kind of shows up in the early opening montages that the heroes, the people who are trying to fight back, aren't all sunshine too. They're, they're, no one's a real hero in this because right. no matter what, we're all still complacent in this kind of uh, cynical world that we kind of live of, of consumerism. Right. So, I mean, from the, from the very beginning, it really shows itself as being something completely different. Um most of the actors on the show were not recognizable to me from other properties. Um, Rami Malek, who plays um, Elliot, who's the main character in the show, was new to me, although he's done a few other things. Um, I recognize him from, uh, he played the quiet uh, son-in-law to Philip Seymour Hoffman's L. Ron Hubbard-esque mm -hmm. character in The Master. He was also in the HBO production The Pacific, uh, playing a incredibly creepy soldier yeah. uh, fighting uh, in, in the Pacific Theater. Um, but he's electric as Elliot. Right. And and so one of the things that's so exciting about this show is that even as it starts to work in areas that maybe seem familiar. So he obviously like is this kind of very definition of the unreliable narrator from the very beginning. Like everything about him. He is like drug addled. He can't pay attention to where he's going. He doesn't believe in anything in the world. That Massive social at. anxiety disorder. Right. Um, Unable to connect with anyone around him. Mm -hmm. And we find out that he is a hacker who hacks everyone 
around him. He hacks his therapist, he hacks his friends, he hacks his neighbors, finds out everything about them, uh, all while working at a cybersecurity company called Allsafe, which the big client for them is E Corp, which he dubs Evil Corp, which in a beautiful move throughout the rest of the show, they are referred to as Evil Corp. Mm-hmm. So clearly, most of the action that's happening is happening with some lens of Elliot over the top of it. So you're really seeing from the very beginning that things that are happening in the world or things that people are saying are not necessarily things that would be said, but rather how Elliot's seeing them and seeing them. Either. He's in every single scene in the in the pilot, I believe. Right. He, there's never a moment where it's not through his filter. Right. So in from the very beginning, Elliot becomes aware of another character, Mr. Robot, who um, has a kind of hacker society called F Society, which is trying to take down Evil Corp, which um, is a company that Elliot has a vested interest in taking down because his father was in some way involved in um, being, well, he had a, he had cancer, which he contracted in some way while working for Evil Corp. Um, and so... From the very beginning, though, you don't like the the Mr. Robot character who is played by Christian Slater um, seems really off. You know, as you're watching him, he never talks to anyone but Elliot in the beginning. Um, he doesn't kind of, seem like anyone ever looks him in the eye. Right. He just appears or to him. in random scenes. Um, and so he seems like a Harvey or, you know, a Tyler, Tyler Durden. Durden. Exactly. Totally. He is completely separate. He's, he's playing a different scene. He mm-hmm. seems to be shot differently. Um, you know, even in the lighting, but Slater is on a different energy right. than everybody else, certainly in comparison to Elliot. But at the same time as you're getting this sort of, um, like manic styling, um, you're the, like the way that the film is, or the film, it's not a film, it's a television program, but it's styled like a film. It's almost reminiscent of something like Drive, where things happen slowly and beautifully. The opening sequence of the show is always shot in a way that is absolutely incredible and strong. And the music, the strings come on, yeah. and it's just, there's gravitas immediately mm-hmm. as the retro sign of Mr. Robot. Yeah, that title card, in. every time it comes on, you. you just kind of catch your breath. Um, and so you're kind of combining this sort of manic 90s energy um, with this kind of beautiful 2015 gravitas. And I think he also is really able to look at things that you don't expect films like this that are looking at like male relationships and corporate greed and all of these things. Um, But there's often huge elements of misogyny in those. Mm. Like this show really, it has a lot of strong female characters and it really shows like in this world, like how people are treated and looking at like the little people in the world. And uh, it's trying to state that there actually is diversity in the real world. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. an incredibly diverse cast, which is wonderful with great performances from nearly everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things as we talked about this before, that really struck me as you were kind of talking about that I haven't mentioned yet is you were you called this very modern and I think that's the perfect way to yeah. describe this this TV show it's incredibly modern um, wonderful scripts wonderful acting but just the look and the styling of this mm-hmm. um, it's not too slick um, it doesn't move too fast um, it just it takes as long as it needs to take I'm incredibly surprised by this now the palette of the film of the TV show is of course and we keep going on I know. that the TV show's palette of course is always from the pilot and it's always part of the director 
who puts that together. It's actually the um, uh, director of the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo from, oh, from yeah. Sweden. Uh-huh. His name is Neil something or other. Um, I don't know his name. I'm a cinematic idiot. Um, so that really helps to have something as strong to set that palette, to set up how the, every subsequent episode will be directed. It's a great move to have mm-hmm. such a seasoned director to do that, to match up with this really incredible script. Now, one of the things I like is that it's you get from the jump street that there is a you know a, 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 a setup where is the Mr. Robot Christian Slater character is he real is he there is he Harvey is he uh, Tyler Durden it doesn't shy away from this Fight Club esque uh, nature it's there and it wears it on its sleeve it has no problem with it it works with it Elliot's narration throughout the episodes is constant just like Edward Norton's right. in the Fight Club it doesn't shy away from it. But at no point does it feel pandering. At no point does it feel like it's just, it's an homage gone wrong. That's just, you know, a copy of Fight Club. Because because Rami Malek's work is so strong, because the writing is so interesting, because of different characters coming through, you spend, you know, half a dozen, you know, the first half a dozen episodes wondering, is Mr. Robot there? Is he real? And, but it's just riveting the entire time. It's a fine line. I feel like what they have managed to do is to take that sort of modern lens of television that's really working in the new age. I think one of the things that has made like bingeable TV and the the kind of secret Chandra Rhymes formula that everybody has kind of figured out is like you really, uh, really successful television or a new show that people are talking about is something where you have no idea what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. So anything can happen. You can turn around. Any character can die. Anybody can, you know, have something terrible happen to them. Um, Any kind of insane thing can appear. Um, And those are the kinds of shows that people are really not able to tear their eyes away from. And especially when you're talking about a show that isn't something that, like, Orange is the New Black, that you can just kind of have on and binge and watch. Um, When it's the kind of show that you're actually waiting week by week, like, things end on cliffhangers of sorts, you know, or there are huge reveals at the end of episodes in the same way that, like, network television, like, Empire or like the Shonda Rhimes shows has really managed to find that kind of rhythm. And I think it does that, but it does that with this like slick prestige like overview in a way that feels totally exactly like what 2015 television should feel like. I feel like the show constantly puts itself into a corner. It paints itself into a corner, um, especially with those with those uh, stunning reveals at the end. Um, when I see what's going to happen next week on the next week uh, clips. I, I constantly am like, what are they going to do? I don't want... There's a, there's a large sequence where they're going to deal with a, a drug dealer. And I'm like, how is he going to get around this? I don't want to spend an episode mm-hmm. dealing with those people. You've got this great F Society, Evil Corp, Master Hacking. You know, they're anonymous, plus you know all the other hacking groups in the world. You know, dropping all the data, trying to bring out these corporate overlords. I don't want to be, you know, dealing with this... Like, this petty drug dealer, you know, murderer mm-hmm. and, and what he wants to do and what he was trying to pull Ellie into his sphere. But damn it, is it not super riveting? I know. The next episode. I know. That episode, you know, they're pulling it into that. It starts off with, with a cold opening where you're just wondering. It's, it's bizarre. It's unsettling and you're wondering what's going on and then it just goes off like a firecracker and it moves and you really are propelled into the story. It's incredible. And yeah. it's done it multiple times where I'm like, why am I caring about this character? Why is, you know, why is this plot still in the mix? You know, oh, I don't want to spend time over here. But every time they pull it off, 
They make me more invested. The finale is next week as we tape this yep. right now. And I'm a little worried about, you know, I would usually be a little worried about, well, how are they going to pull it together? It's already been renewed for a second season before it even dropped. And this was a show where the pilot was released back in March and been on their Facebook page for months to be able to check out. But before the it started up in, officially in July, it was renewed already. Usually I would be worried going into a finale to check this up at, with a penultimate episode where there seems to be so many you know threads that are open as we're having big reveal after big reveal. Yeah. I've decided I'm not going to worry about this show. This yeah. show has got it. This show is completely going to handle and uh, you know is it going to be successful? I don't. I can't guarantee. Yeah, can it, it well. stick the landing? Who knows? Who knows? But if there's ever a show that could, mm-hmm. I feel like in nine episodes I've already got enough confidence in this guy who I didn't know about two months ago yep. that he can do it, he's going to pull it off, that's going to look great, it's going to have great uh, script, it's going to have great performances, and I'm going to be devastated when it's done. <laughs> I'm going to have to wait another year to check it out. Yeah, it's a great show. It's, it's wonderfully done. Um, I can't say enough. And as I said uh, about the American uh, um, Psycho, there's a side character, Tyrell, yeah. um, who is Swedish, who's married to this like beautiful power couple with his Swedish wife and they talk Swedish throughout and like she's like a Lady Macbeth character but a modern Lady Macbeth and she scares me. She's actually the scariest character in the entire show. Yeah, she's terrifying. And I've been wondering for weeks and weeks of why are we really falling around him? And it's because to have an unreliable narrator where we actually have a break in in the psych- you know, the psychic mind of that character where we actually you know, if Elliot is our Tyler Durden Jack from Fight Club. I think we're going to get it where Tyrell is our American psycho because he is so polished. He's a high-end Evil Corp exec, um, as I think Andy Greenwald in his uh, Grantland preview for this. He, he's basically Pete Campbell from Mad Men with Viking blood icing through his veins. And I love... <laughs> and also alluded to that, he there's early episodes where you actually wonder, like, is he a robot? Like, yeah, you know, was, yeah. You know, that a, yeah. Uh, the new AMC show Humans is bleeding in. It's like, is he some sort of android? Because he's he, because he seems so perfect. Because right, he seems so weird. Right. And now when he has these emotions, they're like just these raw emotions of like a, like a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been wondering what's going to come along. I'm worried about that in the finale a little bit. But as I said, I'm not worried anymore. Yeah. But that's I think they're bringing in a little bit of an American Psycho feel there. Uh, which I wasn't expecting, but it's been building up in the last few episodes, which I love. Yeah, so check it out. Mr. Robot, I, I think it would make an awesome binge watch. Also, I think it's frankly. great. Yeah. Uh, the finale is next week as we tape this. We'll drop this soon. Um, I think the biggest issue I have with this show is when you're watching it, that moment when the commercials come in, <laughs> you're watching this high-end prestige show, which is on USA, yeah. and all of a sudden, you want to see the other sorry, Drek that litters the lineup on USA. Blue skies. The blue skies. Right, it's yep. a lot of, like, s- sunglasses. I mean, I've seen the first season of Burn Notice. It's enjoyable, but the rest of their stuff, <laughs> I, I said it, the first season of Burn Notice I can't believe you is enjoyable. I'm going to say it's enjoyable. Did I make Burn it past Nose. the first season? No, but the first season is enjoyable. But a lot of what they do, complications, ugh, white, you know, uh, white suits, all these other, all their other stuff, but that's so they have a that. very different model. Very different model. So it's it's I don't know what mad scientist genius picked this up to do that. But also the type of commercials you get on the USA Network are not a high caliber. There will be no John Hamm voiceover Mercedes no, Benz commercials no, no. popping in. You know, you're not going to see about your William Sonoma or Creighton Barrel or any high. It's it's the it's the lowest common denominator to a degree. 
it's incredibly jarring as you're watching this so, to so go back and what forth. What you're saying is maybe this would be a good show to watch on Netflix when it becomes available. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, or or but, some place. But I would suggest get into it now. Yeah. Video on demand. Figure it out. Uh, I would imagine that USA, they probably will, will show a little mini marathon this weekend. Check it out. It's Mr. Robot. Uh, it's, a, it's surprisingly good. It's surprisingly brilliant. Very good. So at this point, we like to talk a little bit about what we're reading right now. Hey, Brad, what are you reading? All right. So I promise this will be the last time where I talk about a comic book, but I'm going to state this. It is not going to be the last time well, we no, no, talk no, about uh, a comic book. I promise next time I'll talk about an actual book. <laughs> okay. A real live book. Uh, but this one's a little bit different because it's a web-based comic book completely. It's called The Private Eye. Um, it's released on a website called panelsyndicate.com. It's a website owned by the creators of this book. The creators are Brian K. Vaughn and Marcos Martin with um, coloring help by Munsa Vicente. Um, this isn't, uh, Brian K. Vaughn is known within comic book uh, circles. He did uh, Marvel's Runaways, Ex Machina, uh, Why the Last Man are some of his Vertigo books that are really big. He's currently killing it with a book that we both enjoy, Saga, yep. uh, with Fiona Staples, which is a, uh, a saga of sci-fi proportions, a beautiful book about war and family. So this is his current other book right now. I believe he just won the Eisner for Best Digital a book. Marcos Martin has done a lot of work with Marvel. Um, he was a fill-in artist on the most recent Daredevil series, which I know you enjoy, between Pablo Rivera and Chris Somney when coming in. He also did a Doctor Strange book, which would, uh, with Brian K. Vaughn called The Oath. Yep. Um, so, very tight. It's a book that they decided they weren't going to go to a traditional publisher, because these guys could go to Image, go to Vertigo, and just we want to publish a book and it gets done. Uh, that's essentially what Brian K. Vaughn does all the time if he wants to when he's not working in Hollywood writing episodes of Lost. This book is incredible. It's through, and it, the model is what's most interesting about it through their website. It's not a traditional comic, web comic. It's not a couple pages every month. It's done as a pay as you want. So you buy each uh, issue and you pay what you want. You want it for free? Fine. Don't pay them anything. You want to pay $10? It's a little crazy. Go ahead. You pay them what you want. Turned out to be a very successful model for him. This is a reread for me. Um, it's an incredible crime noir type story. Mm -hmm. A bit of a pastiche. You're on a kick. But it's, I'm on a kick. I'm going back to it. Um, it's about uh, a private investigator uh, in the year 2076, getting ready for the uh, tricentennial of the United States. It's a future that is futuristic, but it's different because in a time around now, it, it proposes that um, the cloud burst. Mm -hmm. All of our digital secrets are put out in the open. Um, everything that would be put out there, credit card numbers, scandals, email histories, everything that's hidden behind there, communiques, maybe even your Ashley Madison Ew, account information. I wonder if you're going to make that. Sorry. It, but that, that kind of thing, it's put out there. But everything goes out all at once, not just a piecemeal. So right. the cloud bursts, and as they put it, 40 days, 40 nights later, the world has changed. And basically, America retreats into a world where everyone is hyper-private. To the extent where that when they leave their houses, they put on what they call NIMS, pseudonyms. So everyone, instead of having their avatar be at their computer, they're now the avatar when they leave their house. So it's a world populated with people in superhero outfits, with crazy you know, holographic costumes, where everyone, when they leave the house, you are your avatar. Only at home, and maybe at your job, you actually take off the costume and be yourself. So it's in a world in which everyone is, is hyper-private, and our main character is a private investigator who is hired. It's completely illegal. He's called a paparazzi. He calls himself P.I., 
and he gets into and stumbles into a crime and a murder um, and has to solve it. It's a great book, beautifully uh, drawn and written by these two artists. Um, it's incredible. It's a great little kind of metaphor on our current uh, age of the internet, you know, much like Mr. Robot. Uh, but it's a fun, you know, classically done crime noir story, which as I'm on a kick, I'm going to check it out. So once again, that's The Private Eye. And you can find it from their website, uh, www.panelsyndicate.com. They've released a few other books, and everything is pay as you go. So you could always pick up an issue for free, and then if you like it, Throw them some money down the road. Very cool. And what are you reading right now? Well, so I was going to start out by talking about a comic that I've been reading um, called Hip Hop Family Tree by Ed Fisker, which is a cool book, and I'm not done with it yet. But um, this is kind of cheating because it's not really reading, and it's a podcast. <laughs> but um, so I have been listening and going back and listening to some This American Life that I had missed, including a recent two-part series from them called The Problem That We All Live With, which is about school integration. Um, it really is incredible, particularly that very first episode. Um, they actually go back and listen to um, – well, there was a school that was failing. It had been failing at a 15-year period. And so because it had gotten to that point where it had failed over 15 years, they actually took um, – that school and made it available for students from that school to transfer to another school that could be identified that was in a high performing area. So the students there, 1,000 students from that high school, which I think is almost a third of the population of the school, agree to be bused in the modern age to a suburban, well-to-do, almost exclusively white um, high school. And so they all end up traveling there and NPR um, was able to kind of like follow the experience of what happened there through that course. The idea being that the only thing that really helps with achievement gap, with real discrepancies that we have with haves and have nots, and particularly with, um, with racial diversity, is school integration. And it's the one thing that we know works and that we did for a while and that we don't do anymore. And so it's really exploring the the reasons for that and what happens in a community and what happens when you do integrate a school. Um, and it was just really eye-opening and really helped me to examine my own you know, privilege and my own experience about some of that in all new ways. This year, this whole year has been kind of about that, I would say, but um, but that was a really incredible way to, to see that and experience it. So um, it's it's not a reading, it's listening, but it's an incredible piece of journalism that I would recommend to anyone, and it's This American Life's The Problem We All Live With, Episodes 1 and 2. I've been meaning to get to it. Awesome. So, uh, we have identified what we're going to watch next time. Mm -hmm. um, it is a film that neither of us have seen again. It is more in the, the same kind of modern classic vein <laughs> that The Grifter was, but it is not a noir. Um, it is 9 to 5 from 1980, starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and my own personal favorite, Dolly Parton. Um, we are super excited to check this one out, and this is another one that is available in streaming right now. So if you look at your streaming service, you should be able to try to Certainly. identify it and find it. Um, but it's a comedy, chiefly a comedy, a dark comedy at times, about three women who are treated badly by their boss and decide to come together to enact a... Uh, some revenge um and so they all come together to do that and so we're seeing some pretty cool performances from ladies at uh at like ladies in their 40s which was also sort of a rare thing to see even in the 80s um and i'm excited to check it out with you and so as a cinematic idiot what would you say about this if asked at a dinner party um i would 
talk about how much I adore Lily Tomlin and how I hadn't seen Jane Fonda, you know, at the top of her game since they shoot horses, don't they? I think I would say something along the lines that working nine to five oh, is Lord. all taken and no given. I know. I don't think anyone's talking seriously about nine to five at a dinner <laughs> party. I'll point that out. Coleman. He was a horrible boss. What a terrible know. guy. I'm excited to check this one out. Yeah, I yeah. also have, so we'll get into that next uh, podcast, mm-hmm. but I'm very much happy to be checking out 925. All right, so you've been listening to Brad and Monica, your own Cinemac Idiots. Huge thanks to our producer, editor, and consigliere, Clay Addy, who makes this show run. Special thanks to Tom DJ of Bossman Graphics for our amazing logo that he designed for us. I really just, I'm probably going to get a tattoo of it. Watch out. Uh, if you like the show, please review us on iTunes. Uh, subscribe to us. Uh, load us onto whatever your podcatcher is. I know that's a term they're using nowadays, Ew. but check us out. SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, please check us out and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at, at Cinematic Idiots. We're bound to post something at some point. Come find us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook group. We're bound to switch the uh, cover over to a beautiful picture of uh, from 9 to 5 right away. <laughs> um, and remember, most importantly, don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Take care. Thank you.